Welcome to season one, episode one of your Smart Money Mindset podcast. Hi, I'm Dom C, founder of Your Smart Money Mindset, an educational platform, thriving community dedicated to empowering young people to financially flourish. Each month, Your Smart Money Mindset will bring you financial info, top tips and support in a manner that's fun, easily digestible and most importantly, relatable to you. Over the course of the episodes, I'll be interviewing an array of guests from all walks of life, subject matter experts or young people themselves as we get into the nitty gritty of all things personal finance. And that's not all. In between interviews, I'll be sharing my best top tips on managing your money based on my real life personal finance journey and challenges. So if you're a money management newbie looking to level up your finances or even a personal finance connoisseur, I'm confident that you'll find something useful here for you. Now that we've got introductions out of the way, here's two small steps, big wins. Let's get it. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, I'm joined by American guest Nina Mahanti, a financial technology expert and inclusion advocate who has had a thriving career in the financial tech industry. From Starling Bank to MasterCard, Nina has worked with some of the biggest startup names that have literally transformed the way we manage our money. And prior to that, has worked for the US Embassy under the Obama administration. Nina and I caught up on this episode to discuss financial resilience, something that has become increasingly important in the wake of the pandemic. We discussed what it means to be financially resilient and crucially, some of the challenges faced by young people in building financial resilience in the 21st century. We also talk about how the financial services and fintech in particular can empower people to become more financially resilient. Nina is very open about her own financial journey and shares some lessons learned and top tips to help you on your path to financial resilience. Nina, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. So great to be with you, Dom. How are you doing? No, I'm not too bad. It is, um, I'm really good. It's 7 a.m. here, so I'm pumped. You are an early riser, unlike me. (laughs) What time time is it? It it is 11 p.m. here in California. Now, Nina, you and I had a really great conversation last week about empowering young people um, to become more financially resilient and, and what that truly means. And what I love, and it's one of the reasons I absolutely had to get you on, is you're such an advocate for financial inclusion, you know, in your current role and, and previous roles that you've had. You have worked on products and services that champion inclusion and help people, particularly women and young people, to build their financial resilience. Now, I've tried to keep quite tight-lipped about your background um, so, so as not to steal your thunder. So do you want to briefly tell us a little bit more about you? What led you to this cause and working in fintech specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to you as always. Um, So a bit about me. I um, am from California. Uh, You can probably tell from the accent. I'm actually from the Silicon Valley. Yes, people do grow up um, and live here. Uh, So I was born and raised here. And um, that's quite important in my story. My parents were both engineers in the dot-com boom. Um, I, I tell people jokingly, well, not even jokingly, quite 
realistically that they helped build the internet that we use today. And um, I grew up completely the opposite of them. And I actually have a younger brother who is also an engineer. <laughs> and um, I'm just the complete opposite of all of them in that they're very left brain, very logical people. And um, I was never like that. I hated maths. I can't do maths to save my life. Um, I was always about, you know, the kind of softer side of things. Um, I studied international relations, but I was all about the arts and liberal arts and that sort of thing. Um, and I actually wanted to work for the CIA when I was in uni, believe it or not. <laughs> so um, my first job out of uni was working for um, the Foreign Commercial Service in London under the Obama administration, which was a fantastic experience about public service and why, you know, conversations like these are still so important to have. But um, I really fell into fintech, I tell people, because I started my career in fintech by accident. I was doing my master's degree and I just desperately needed a job. Um, any job would do. And um, where I went to uni, everyone for my master's, everyone just automatically kind of applied for investment banking, for consulting, you know, all of the high paying jobs was what everyone was going for. And I kind of was just so desperate for any job. I didn't really know what I wanted to do quite yet, um, that I just went along with it and I got swift rejections I tell you Dom it was almost hilarious how quickly there was one high street bank that rejected me in less than 24 hours um I think it might have been less than 12 actually but um it's really fun well funny to look back at now but at the time a woman put me in touch with some people at MasterCard and she said you know hey we're hiring for um this team and it was a digital payments team so I was able to join MasterCard very fortunate at that time, um, worked a lot on tokenization, um, digital payments in general, but it was also that summer that I started at MasterCard that Monzo was called Mondo. They were in their alpha, uh, no, sorry, they had, no, they had just launched as Mondo. Uh, Starling was in their like alpha testing and uh, Revolut was on the MasterCard start path. And that was a really, exciting time because as someone who grew up in the Silicon Valley, I had been aware of consumer tech for some time. And I was a bit wary of like the social networks, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I think now we see, we know how dangerous they have become. But back then, even I was quite concerned about that. And so it was really refreshing to see fintech companies using technology with the sole purpose of trying to better people's financial lives. And that was really the breakthrough moment. And that's when I fell in love with FinTech. So since then, um, I've had the honor and privilege of um, working at MasterCard, uh, worked a bit in Vienna, Austria, came back, helped launch the Starling Current account, uh, which was a really exciting time. And then I was... Um, not poach, but uh, was offered this role from another company called Bud. They were uh, are an open banking platform based out in East London. Um, I joined when we were in this tiny, tiny office off of Brick Lane. And we were just like a one room office. I remember one bathroom shared by like 15 of us. 
And it was a really exciting time, but I um, currently work for Klarna, the Swedish payments company, um, working very much close to product. But in my spare time, I'm very passionate about financial inclusion. Um, I sit on the steering committee of the Joint Refugee Action Network, um, and I'm all about working with young people, with women, um, and trying to help vulnerable groups more broadly. So um, that is something that is very much my passion. And so I'm very excited to be here to talk to you today. And, and that is really, really key because today we're talking about financial resilience, you know, what it means to be financially resilient um, and how one feels empowered or how a young person can feel empowered mm. to develop their financial resilience. Um, and it's something, it's a term that has become increasingly important in 2020, you know, a year that none of us really expected. Mm. Um, and we've heard this term so much, financial resilience, it's so key, yada, yada, yada. Um, so just from a financial expert like yourself and just throwing all the fancy jargon out of the way, how would you define financial resilience? <laughs> Excuse me. And and, and what do you think it encompasses? Yeah, well, um, I will have to defer to the great Dr. Barbara O'Neill from Rutgers University. I think um, I'm going to give you kind of an academic uh, definition first, and then we'll kind of break that down. Yeah. But um, financial resilience is essentially uh, the ability to withstand life events that impact one's income and or assets. Um, these can be stressful events, um, perhaps negative events such as unemployment or divorce or, or health problems, but they can also be really positive events like um, having a child or getting married. And what this really means is um, your ability to roll with the punches, right? Roll with life's punches and the interesting thing is it's much like the word resilience on its own when we speak about one's resilience, about one's mental health resilience, their physical res uh, health resilience. It's just the same thing applied to your financial life. And I would uh, even go so far as to argue that one's financial resilience really plays a large part in their overall you know, resilience as a human being. Um, but there are so many different ways in that they can be uh, categorized both positive and negative. And I think we've seen this year that, you know, particularly this year has been tough, uh, mostly negative events that have really been trying a lot of people's financial resilience. Now, Mina, as you know, from our conversations and I'll be the first to admit uh, from until well into my 20s, I made a lot of personal finance mistakes, you know, from spending beyond my means, thinking only in the here and now and just generally not making the best choices about financial products and services. But when I look back at a lot of those mistakes and the sticky situations I found myself in, I think it stemmed from lacking the knowledge and the know-how on how to manage my finances. And the overarching cause of that was from just not talking about money, not talking about the mechanics of managing my money um, whilst growing up. And it, it therefore just wasn't something that I prioritise. And even when I look today, I think although we've gotten better at it, I think as society, we, we just don't talk enough about money. 
you know, not, not at home, not really at school or between friends. It's just not something that you generally speak about. And I think that can be really detrimental for young people, especially because if you're growing up, not talking about money, not understanding the value of money or looking at or practicing any of the mechanics for managing it, then you have to learn that later in life. And that usually happens when you are, you know, facing difficult times, difficult situations. Um, and so I definitely think that part of building financial resilience the starting point is making sure that we're talking about money. Uh, why do you think, though, that we struggle talking about it? And, and how do you think we can move past that so it's less of a taboo and something that is, is approached like eagerly and, and spoken about just generally like you would speak about what you're doing on the weekend? Yeah, I definitely feel the same way. I um, I come from a, well, I'm Asian, um, half Taiwanese and half Indian. And so I, I always thought it was just Asian culture where we're like very averse to speaking about money. We just don't talk about it. Um, whether you have it, whether you don't, right? It's just like you don't talk about it. But then actually I came to the UK and I think there is just like an English cultural approach where we just don't talk about money either um, I noticed a lot of my fellow immigrant children friends also have this you know whether they're um, African immigrant children or Caribbean immigrant children or whatever they also have this similar approach in their family so it seems like a worldwide phenomenon where like no one is talking about money and it's so taboo everywhere you know like even today I'd say we've progressed so far and we can talk about the wage gap, right? Because before we didn't want to talk about it. Now we are talking about it. Now we're trying to measure it fine. But I mean, we've come so far, but even then it makes people uncomfortable to talk about the wage gap. Um, you know, the, the rudest thing you can do is ask someone how much money they make. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's so interesting because as you say, it is so detrimental to all of us when we don't discuss these things. And I think a big part of that is, um, power, right? Because, because money is power. Um, being financially empowered, being financially resilient is powerful. It means that you are able to live an independent life and live your life as you so choose. Um, I've referred to in the past often this um, kind of savings goal pot that people talk about all the time. You look at most money bloggers and stuff, they'll tell you to build an emergency fund, right? Where it's like your, it's your go bag. It's your money go bag where, you know, you've got enough savings that if you are in a terrible situation at work where you've got an abusive boss or, you know, the, you've been harassed or whatever, you pull the ripcord, you've got your money, you've got enough money to, ride a few months out to find a new job. If you're in a relationship that's breaking down or, you know, you break up for whatever reason and, you know, you're waiting on that security deposit to come back to you, you still have enough money to put a deposit down and find a new place, right? Um, or something terrible happens, whatever. Like this is the power of money, of, of being financially resilient and being financially independent. It allows you to live your life um, as your own and independently. And I think so often 
we don't talk about it because it's scary because you know with great power and i mean not to quote uh what was it spider-man they it's i don't think it actually is a spider-man quote it must be from something else but with great power comes great responsibility um and i think there's also a mindset of of scarcity with money so you know some of my girlfriends they are really really quiet about their finances Mm -hmm. and that's always really I've never I've never understood it's puzzled me always and so I then realized like oh maybe they're making more than me and there is oftentimes I this definitely happens with my male friends where they kind of go some of them will go oh yeah well I don't want to tell you how much money I make I probably make more and that their thinking is skewed in that there's a limited amount of resources available right so if if they tell me how much they make, or if like a male colleague tells me like, oh, actually you should be asking for X, Y, Z instead of what you're on. They're afraid that, you know, that's going to affect them negatively. When actually that's not the case at all. We all win when we talk about it. Um, But I think there is kind of this idea that like, oh my gosh, if I tell someone else, there's going to be less money for me or, or something like that. So um, it is, it is such a funny one. And I think even for me, someone who's pretty open about, about money I make, where I put my money, you know, what I invest in, um, about the mistakes I've made, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I think that sometimes I come across friends who are just like, oh no, I just don't want to talk about it. And, um, that is fascinating. So I'm, I'm glad that we are discussing it now. I think there's another part to it as well. Uh, and this kind of leads me on to my next point. Um, I think for young people and, and also for everyone and, and myself, we're living in an age um, of, you know, I don't need this, but I want oh, this. Yeah. You know, but Gemma, Jade, Gary, and John, I don't know where I got those names <laughs> from, but whatever, have got this. So I've got to have it, you know, yeah. I've got to keep up. A generation where social media and in real life, you're living with experiencing what I like to call the keeping up with the Joneses effect. Mm-hmm. Be it clothes, shoes, cars, or, or as you get older, houses, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, as a recovering spendaholic, I've been there spending money so that I don't come across a certain way. Um, and it's this social pressure to mm-hmm. spend, spend, spend. And I think, it's so fascinating because I have definitely fallen prey to this. We live in a world where social media has connected us and it's been a wonderful thing. It's been a blessing, especially this year, for example, but it can also be a curse. And I, and you know, it's crazy how actually how accurate the algorithm on Instagram has become for me now. Um, so it, <laughs> they know that like, I really love a good cashmere sweater, you know? (laughs) And at some point they decided that I got a raise uh, because the cashmere sweaters used to be kind of like more affordable. Uh, Now they're like obscenely expensive. I'm like, wait a second, you must have, (laughs) you have decided I got a raise. I haven't had a raise, but okay, fine. Um, Or, you know, gold jewelry. They know I love some gold jewelry. Um, a lot of like homeware stuff. I'm a sucker for that or like organizing things, you know, and they just are so good at at serving that up to me. And I realized the other day, like I was scrolling through Instagram and every other post is an ad. 
right? Like a sponsored ad by a brand, but then there's also just influencers or, or content creators um, who are putting out all sorts of ads and they're like, oh, I, I got this teeth whitening kit and that my life is so much better now. And you're like, oh, wow, really is it? <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, wow, I better go and buy that. That's what I need. But I find that even now with my friends and as you you said earlier, like I'm in a slightly different life stage than my friends right now. Yeah. I have friends that are starting to get married or already are married or some even are starting to you know start their families which is wonderful but we are in very very different life stages and i also have friends who are you know making way more money than i am or they're kind of like trust fund babies or you know whatever that i met from school or whatever and they i know people who even during this pandemic are getting just today i saw someone post that she was getting on a private jet plane uh, to fly out to Hawaii. And I was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, there's a global pandemic on, first of all. And like, second of all, let's consider like the sustainability of that. But then like, third, what like what kind of money do you have that that's what you decide to do? I'm over here like, oh man, I'll rough it out in the economy plus if I'm going to travel, right? Um, so it's been fascinating to live it, being in it, um, as you said, like being a spendaholic, a shopaholic, and um, we'll get to the story, I'm sure, later, but I used to be, you know, this person who wanted to project this image of myself as being very grown up, and I, like, started nesting when I was in uni and buying a lot of homeware and just, like, full-on, like, plates and dishes and, like, cutlery, and it was like, Nina, you live in a you live in a dorm room. What the hell are you doing? Right. I racked up so much credit card debt. And it's just like, I was trying to project this idea of like someone who was very mature and like classy. And now on the flip side where I'm able to step away and go, Oh yeah, I want it. But uh, how many times are I going to use it? Is this something that I actually want? Is this something that I'm being conditioned to want? Is this something that my friends have, which is why I want it? Um, and really interrogate the feelings behind it. But it is journey. It is, it's a personal journey for every person to get to that kind of enlightened stage, right? Yeah. And that kind of leads me on to my next point. So what do you think are some of the key steps that you can take to help build financial resilience? Like what are just your absolute go-tos? Because for example, for me, um, when I started processing my spending behavior and getting serious about taking control of my finances, um, you know, you did the stuff like tracking your spending and okay, I've got to cut this cost and that cost, et cetera, and, you know, build up an emergency fund. Um, but that can sometimes be easier said than done. So what do you think are some of the steps that one can start taking in order to build their financial resilience? Yeah, I think the place that we've got to start is with ourselves, right? So um, I, I've used this metaphor in the past in that I, I, I go to a therapist and I very much recommend it to everyone, not just this year, but definitely this year included. But um, I've been saying for a while now, everyone should have a therapist. And I've said this to friends. I've said this to romantic partners. I've said this to uh, colleagues at work. I can wax lyrical about going to therapy all I want. But at the end of the day, 
it's up to the person that I'm speaking to, my friend, my partner, whomever, to decide that, hey, I'm going to go to therapy. And it's a very personal decision. And just like therapy is a very personal decision, so is deciding to take on your financial resilience, financial literacy, whatever journey. And I think this is something that you have to really drive home because you know, there's going to be different points when different people realize that it's time. You and I have discussed this in the past where we were, you know, spending way above our means. And I've talked about this quite openly in that there was a time. So I had racked up so much debt buying useless stuff, absolutely like nonsensical things. And it actually wasn't even that I was spending that much. It was the compounded interest that was really killing me. And it got to a point where there were days when I was so anxious about money and about being able to pay off my debt that I was just a nervous wreck, right? An absolute ball of nerves. And I started doing things that were just completely out of character. I would be in a foul mood if I was having a bad day, worrying about money. I did things that I'm not proud of. You know, I, um, this guy said, Hey, I'll pay you to write this essay. And I just was like, yeah, I need the money. And he was offering me money to write it. So I did it. And I'm not proud of that at all, but it's something that I did in my desperation. And, um, it's for me, when it got to this boiling point, that was rock bottom. And that was when I was like, okay, this has gone too far and this is getting now dangerous. This is not to say that it needs to always be something terrible that tips you off or triggers you into wanting to take full responsibility of your financial journey. Um, it could be a great thing, right? It could be like you get a raise and all of a sudden you go, oh, this is amazing. Like I have this money. Now I finally want to like figure everything out and pay off my debt and start saving and whatever. And that's brilliant as well. Right. Um, but only you can make that decision for yourself. So you can chat with your friends all you want and you can say, do this, do that. But until you decide to do it, it's not going to happen. That's the first place to start. The second place to start, uh, second place, um, second step rather is, okay, what can I manage? Baby steps, right? Because it's not like I'm going to go overnight spend, uh, saving five grand a month, right? <laughs> like I don't even make that much, but we really need to take it in small steps. So what is feasible for me right now? Could it be that I use an app or um, within my own banking app, I'm able to round up all of my purchases and tip all of those roundups into a savings pot? maybe that is like the starting point and that's like, cool, this feels good. And I've contributed something each month, or maybe it's saying, you know what, I'm going to put, put aside 10 pounds a week um, or 10 pounds a month, even whatever works for you and for your budget. But the overarching thing is to get started on that quickly, because then you start forming the habit. Um, the tip I always give people if they are not paying off debt, and want to start saving is to set up a direct debit where basically once your payday happens, the money is immediately withdrawn out and moved into that other account. Um, you want this to happen. So it's out of sight, out of mind. You can't touch it. You decide how much you're willing to put away. If that's 40 pounds a month, if that's 10 pounds a month, whatever. If it's 4,000 pounds a month, by all means, do whatever 
is right for you. Um, and I think the third thing is to start um, engaging with your friends, with your family, if that's doable, um, and with platforms like your own DOM, um, like the, there's so many out there that are really trying to tackle financial literacy. And um, I really love that, you know, that you're building this community, that you are putting this content out, because I think a big part of it as well is being constantly reminded of it. So if I am scrolling through Instagram anyway, but I see, you know, one of the accounts that I follow as a money blogger, for example, is like, oh, um, don't forget that the deadline to fill your ISA is coming up, uh, individual savings account, then I'll be like, oh yes, of course I should do that. Or maybe if I'm not in a place to really start investing in an ISA yet, I'll go, oh, that's something that maybe I wanna do in the near future. And so it's in my head, it's, it's on my roadmap and something that I wanna work towards. And I think also, talking about your own journey, um, making this sound like a massive road trip, but it kind of is, is to really map out where you wanna be in your life, right? So what I do is, where do I wanna be in a year? Where do I wanna be in five years? Where do I wanna be in 10? And obviously it doesn't need to be like written in stone. We have no idea, no one could have predicted this year, right? But the point is you're thinking about what, where you want to be and what you need to do to get there. So I would say, write it down, um, like physically write it down. Don't just type it out, physically write it down and then work backwards and go, right. Okay. Um, say I, Nina in five years time, want to buy a flat. Great. How much money do I need to do that? What do I need for a down payment? What do I need for stamp duty? What do I need for all the fees that come with it? Great. Now I have a number. How much do I need to have saved up to be able to do that? Um, and then you're able to kind of go, okay, I'm going to need to save, uh, 20 grand, which is way under what you would need in London, but I digress. Um, more, more realistically, I'm going to need 60 grand to pay, um, upfront for this flat. So I need to start saving, you know, over the next five years, um, 12 grand. Oh my God. Is that right? Yeah. 12 grand a year. Okay. <laughs> So then at least I know that I need to start doing that, right? And so writing that down is really great. I think the final thing I'll say is this. Financial resilience is a very personal thing. And I talk about financial resilience and in a previous podcast, I've talked about financial literacy. And I think the two go hand in hand. Um, financial literacy is basically just knowing various things that your money can do for you. Um, knowing how to make your money work for you. It's um, being able to be fluent in the language of money, right? And in a previous podcast, I said, like, you can read every book in the world, but you're still not going to be Barack Obama, unfortunately. Similarly, you can max out to a point of financial literacy, but you're still not going to be Bill Gates, right? You can't expect to become rich overnight. Anyone that is telling you that, that you can become rich overnight is lying to you. They are lying to you or they're a conman. Like, I'm just going to tell it to you straight. Uh, becoming rich overnight doesn't happen. Like, it often seems that way for some people. Um, but what you don't see is the hard work and sweat and tears that went behind it leading up to this overnight success, right? Um, so 
keep that in mind, but also be gentle with yourself. Um, because we're talking about young people right now and young people have been severely hit by this pandemic. Uh, I was reading, you know, how we're really going to have a crisis because so many young people weren't able to find jobs. Um, so they're already, you know, behind financially, but also just like in terms of career development, they're a year behind now and their confidence has gone down. Um, but then on top of that, you also have issues of other intersecting problems, right? And you and I have talked about this a lot as women of color, where it's like, we are women. <laughs> women structure, like there's structural misogyny and structural racism baked into the financial systems in which we live. And the, the financial system that we live in has been built for a very specific demographic of people that tends to look like the current prime minister, right? So you have to be gentle with yourself. And if you're going, why is it that I'm not saving 25,000 pounds each year? Well, you know, it could be that there's other things at play or maybe you need to increase your salary first before we can talk about saving 25 grand. But also there are other things where as a woman, we're probably making less than our male peers. Um, as women of color, uh, we're probably making less than our white female peers, right? So there are other things and not to play victim to that, but just be aware that these things exist. Um, and we're all working on trying to make the system better. I mean, that is what I wake up and try to do each day, but um, don't get down on yourself when all of a sudden you're like, why is this taking so much time? Like I'm, I'm struggling so much. I thought I would have so much more saved up. Like, yes, you're working at it and that's what matters. And again, if anyone tells you you can become rich overnight, they're lying. Yeah, and I think you touched on something which is, is quite important. Obviously, COVID especially, we know it's had an impact on a number of people, but um, most definitely in terms of young people specifically, it has had a detrimental effect on um, their employment prospects and, and just their personal finances. And I was actually reading also this uh, FCA uh, financial live survey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it was really clear that a significant portion of millennials and Generation Zs like entered the crisis with quite low financial resilience already, you know, um, not much of a financial cushion, not a lot of liquid assets and things like that. Um, and as a result and as a consequence and, and a coping strategy, if you like, many of them in dealing with their falling income and things like that are having to you know, dip into savings that they might have um, put together or they're having to rely on, on, on taking out credit and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, just to kind of stay afloat, you know, deferring payments and, and all of these things which go against or um, make building your financial resilience even harder. So just stepping into your world a little bit, obviously the government has, you know, put in place a number of schemes um, to help all people affected by COVID, um, furlough, the kickstart scheme and things like that. But how do you think the financial industry and specifically fintech in particular, how do you think that 
they can help young people to recover from the economic fallout of COVID and really help to foster young people's financial resilience? Yeah, I think from the, the aftermath of this pandemic is going to be horrendous and I don't envy the job of anyone in Downing Street or in any any government office having to deal with the fallout after coronavirus because um, it's going to be tough. There is going to be a need for the government to step in and do a lot, of course, um, but there's also a huge need for the private sector to also step in. And I have been thinking about this quite a bit. Obviously, I work in fintech. I think in we've we've talked about this before, Dom, that the previous crisis in 2008 was very man-made in that it was the banks misbehaving, right? And that caused a global crisis. Mm-hmm. And perhaps your listeners were too young to remember it. Um, but it was it was awful. And the fallout was terrible. And there was a lot of animosity towards the banks for squandering people's money and getting us all into this, like the worst, you know, recession in quite some time, a global recession. And it was, I mean, there's a reason it's called the great crash, right? The great financial crash. So that 10 years ago was the fault of banks this time around it's a it's a natural biological thing right that's really been the menace and so there's a huge opportunity for banks to step up and address this problem interestingly the previous crisis the banks were so awful that people didn't trust them anymore and i think that really was what pushed this um cropping up of new fintech companies like Monzo, like Starling, like Revolut, um, TransferWise, whatever, that kind of cropped up and said, you can't trust the banks, trust us. I think this time around, because it wasn't man-made, it wasn't the banks that did it, there's an opportunity for both the banks and the fintechs, but even now, even newer fintechs to crop up and go, what you've been doing the past 10 years hasn't been good enough because you've not been serving the vulnerable people. You've not been serving young people and we need to get back to the roots and serve those people. So what I'd like to see is really, um, whether it's loans or, or overdrafts that are have more forgiving terms, um, if people wanna upskill, if they want to you know, seek a new degree or something, being able to do so in a way that's financially sustainable. Um, I want to see um, apps that are uh, fintech apps that are giving people different options to save or to lend money or whatever um, in a way that is in keeping with a young person's life. Obviously, you know, we can't, as I said, the menace was biological. It wasn't like any one person who we can blame and say, hey, give us a payout. But I think a big part of it is going to have to be the public sector and the private sector working together to make sure that we have a better future coming out of it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, There is definitely opportunity, I think, for um, especially banks, because customers now are turning to their banks to help them become more resilient, to kind of bulletproof themselves financially um, to face future downturns. 
Um, I would like to see, you know, without talking about those that I bank with, I kind of would like to see my bank and, and even possibly fintech um, products take more control in mm-hmm. helping me to manage my money. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think they're one of the things I, you know, I'm very close to product in my day-to-day jobs and I'm always saying to people like, oh, how do we be more innovative? How do we reach the new generation? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, speak to them. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. Cool. Like, just speak to them. They, they will tell you what they want and what they need. And that is my message to the banks. It's like, you can cater to young people. You just need to speak to them and they will tell you what you need to do next. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I love that you've been so open in previous interviews. I've listened to Nina just about your own financial journey and you've kind of touched on it a few times um, just briefly during this interview. But just for my own listeners who might not have heard your story, could you tell us a little bit more about that? A big part of my financial journey was making a lot of mistakes at the beginning. So at the beginning, I definitely was irresponsible and didn't understand credit cards. And it was a time when, you know, anyone could apply for a credit card. There weren't really huge restrictions on um, banks for issuing cards to young people. And so they would, you know, be on your campus and they'd say, you know, 0% APR. And you go, oh my God, that's free money. That's amazing. And you would not read the fine print, right? And I definitely didn't. And so I worked myself into quite a bit of debt. Um, and it got to the point where, as I said, I was so anxious. I was so nervous about paying this debt off that it started to really have a negative impact on my life. And that was my rock bottom. And when I decided I need to be better. So I was quite lucky in that I was able to get a debt consolidation loan. I can never say that word, a debt (laughs) consolidation loan, um, pay that all off and have a fixed term loan to pay it off. And so it wasn't compounding anymore. So that is one of the things I say often, Albert Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world is compounded interest. He was completely right, but it works in both ways. It works uh, for for your savings and your investments, but it also works um, for debt. So I learned that the hard way. And so it was great to be able to kind of have that off my chest, to have a fixed sum that I needed to pay each month. And actually in a few months time, that will be completely paid off. So I'm really excited about that. And actually I could pay it off today. So maybe, hey, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll go into 2021 with no debt. That would be amazing, right? Um, But once I had that tackled and it was no longer compounding interest and it was like manageable, it was like, okay, let's see what I can start saving. And I started really small. So I had a raise and I was like, cool, I'm going to try putting 50 pounds aside each month. And then I started growing that each month or not each month, but like over time, I started growing how much more I was saving. Um, And I was only able to do this because I had consolidated my debt. So don't get me wrong. If you do have debt and not able to consolidate it into a non-compounding interest loan, definitely work on paying down the debt first. Um, But for my particular instance, this is what worked for me. So I was able to start saving more and more. And then all of a sudden I had money that I was like, oh, okay. If I were to invest 50 pounds, it won't break my bank completely if I invest it somewhere and were to lose it. And that's something I tell people when they start their investing journeys is 
Um, one, don't invest in anything you don't understand. And two, don't invest what you aren't willing to lose, right? Because markets change, things change all the time. You can buy all the Bitcoin you want as, and think that it's going to keep growing, but it could just as easily drop down to nothing tomorrow. So that's something that I say to people, don't invest more than you're willing to lose. And so I had, you know, suddenly I had 50 pounds. I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll open an account and I'll um, invest in, a, in some fund somewhere. And that's when it started becoming really rewarding for me to see that money grow. Um, and I've got a, a pot here in the States. I use an app called Acorns. There are many equivalents, but you kind of do the rounding up, topping up of each of your purchases. And I also have like $10, $10 that I put into the account each month or each week. And that has compounded over two years because um, it's invested, sorry, not compounded. It has been invested and it's now worth about $4,000, just like passively, right? That, that money that I've been putting away, that's amazing. And so I think um, there's definitely so much value in just taking baby steps. And for me, like, have I reached the epitome of financial resilience? I think, as I said before, like I grew up in, an, my parents are immigrants. So we kind of have always lived in this mindset of scarcity where we're always trying to save more. And there's like never enough savings. But I think I'm at a point now where it's like, actually, if I pull the ripcord, if I were to leave my job or heaven forbid something were to happen, I could probably make it six months without needing to immediately find work. Um, or I would look for a job, obviously, while that was going on, but I would be okay. And that is freedom and that is power. And so I think in that sense, I definitely have. Um, as I said, like, you know, I do want to buy a place one day. And so I'm still working towards that. That's kind of my five-year plan. But um, until I get there, that's, I'm, I would say I'm pretty financially resilient in my own book. That is really great. And um, things such as investing and things like that, those topics, we hope to maybe get you on at a later stage to discuss. And I will definitely be having other guests to talk about and unpick that because I think it's definitely um, a interesting area. But it's an area that I don't feel a lot of us um, know much about, if I'm being really honest, those who aren't, you know, working in the financial industry or in fintech. So it'd be quite good to kind of unpick that in and go into that in a bit more detail. So, Nina, we have been pretty heavy with the questions, you know, <laughs> but it has been really, really good to get your insights and just, you know, some top tips things that you can start, actionable steps that you can start taking to build financial resilience, which is so, so important, probably more now than it's been in a very, very long time. Um, but I want to just switch it up with just a short segment that I like to end my podcast episodes with. Bearing in mind, this is my first one. So I'm just setting the trajectory of my the rest of my episodes. Um, but I'm just going to throw you some really quick fire questions and you just say the very first thing that pops into your head okay yeah let's do it okay cool so what are your top three user-friendly money apps that you're using currently so as i mentioned before i used to work for starling but starling is definitely one of them <laughs> um, i am such a big fan of the way that it's been built um it works which is like amazing um and you know you Oftentimes with your banking apps, you're kind of like, why doesn't this work? Like, this should be so much easier. I'm just trying to make a payment, but I need like 
a security vault and like a letter from the Pope to bloody send a payment, right? Whereas at Starling, it's super easy, super functional. Of course, I'm biased. I helped, you know, launch it and build it, but um, definitely rate Starling Bank. Um, the second would be Chip. So Chip is one of those apps that I spoke about um, or that was alluding to kind of like acorns here in the state where um, they work kind of differently, where they go and they use um, this technology called open banking. You connect your bank account and they kind of go through your transactions and go, right, based on the amount of money that you have left in your account and based on your overall spending, we think that you can afford to part with 10 pounds this week. And they'll go ahead and tip those 10 pounds into a savings account for you. Um, or into a, a separate pot. You can choose if, if you want to put into a savings account. And that has been really great because it's another passive way to start saving um, along with any of the apps like Money Farm that um, do those roundups. And then the last one I'd say is Pension B. Um, it is an app, but there's also kind of desktop version of it. And Pension B is a great one because there is a huge pension gap um, for women mostly, but there's just also like not very much education around pension. And I think that has to do with the fact that pensions are thinking about retirement. You, no one wants to think about death. <laughs> no one wants to think that far out in advance, but it's so important because I think you and I have discussed this in the past. Our parents were more of the generation where they would um, start a job straight out of uni or you know straight out of school and work there until they retired. And they would get, you know, a cake and it's like happy retirement and that's it. And then you've got your pension or whatever. That is not the case anymore for us. And I think, especially with millennials, with Gen Z, we are much more open to moving around. Um, you know, my dad was like, you should stay somewhere four to five years. And I'm like, God, people are lucky if they stay there two to three years anymore, I feel like. And there's definitely some people refer to it as flighty um it kind of depending on each person's individual story like it could be flighty it could be that a new opportunity came up whatever the case we're definitely employed by more companies now than ever before and so with that comes the fact that actually in the UK the government um they they started this thing that was um I highly recommend this book called Nudge by Richard Thaler um he's a Nobel winning economist and his whole premise was that um, we need to nudge people in specific ways. And so what they did, the government adopted it such that when you start work, you're automatically enrolled into a pension and you actually have to actively opt out of being part of this pension. And so you might not even know it, but you were paying into a pension at some internship or one of the first jobs you ever had. And while there might not be a ton of money in there, there's still money in there. And there's like billions of pounds that are lost in pensions each year because people forget about the pensions that they had. So what Pension B is great for is you kind of sit down one afternoon, log into all of those old pensions, kind of go through your entire work history and make sure that you know, you've know you logged into all of them. And they do all the heavy lifting which normally would be such a pain in the ass. They do all the heavy lifting of moving that money into one pot. And then with them, you can invest into one of their funds. Um, and they have a great range of funds. They just launched quite recently their fossil fuel free fund, um, which is great for those who are really into climate sustainability. And one I would definitely look at if that's something you're interested in. So Pension B is another great one. Brilliant, thank you. And. If you could go back to your younger self, 
what would you say is the one thing that you would probably tell her um, when starting on her money management personal finance journey? Yeah, I think I touched on this before, but it would be, do you really need that? (laughs) Um, It would be that or it would be, uh, well, you know, we discussed this at length. It's like, why are we buying the things that we're buying? Because so often we just buy things and then they end up in the trash or never used in the corner of a wardrobe somewhere. So that's definitely one thing I would have told myself. The second would just be to have patience. Um, Everything takes time. Getting to start my financial journey took time. Getting to the point where I started seeing returns on my investments, that took time as well. Like the $4,000 that I made with Acorns here in the States, like, yeah, that's a lot of money, but that was over two years. And even that was like pretty, pretty good growth. Um, So everything takes time. And if you are investing, not just in the markets, but investing in yourself, investing in your personal health, in your mental health, everything takes time and you need to have patience. And the more you do it, the more naturally it will come. And it's just like forming a habit. So be patient with yourself. I love that. Thank you so much, Nina. And one final one for me. What is your biggest, walking into 2021, what is your biggest 2021 financial goal um, for the year? Yeah, so I mentioned my five-year goal is definitely to finally buy a place, um, which I'm like already on um, all of the uh, the sites looking at different flats. I'm like, oh, can I afford this? But um, my short-term goal probably for the next year is something that I've been working on, this kind of side hustle, side project um, that I have been bankrolling myself. So out of my savings, um, and it's kind of working specifically with vulnerable people and financial inclusion. So I'm just hoping to finally launch that in the new year at some point. That is, um, yeah, because I'm bankrolling it, it's my (laughs) financial goal. So excited and hopefully uh, we'll keep working at it so that it happens. Well, the very best of luck with that and do keep us updated on your progress with it. Thank Thank you so much, Nina. It has been great to have you on your Smart Money Mindset and just lastly for my listeners where where can they find you if they want to hear more about you or from you yeah so you can find me on twitter i spend way too much time on there at nina Mohanty. uh if you want you're welcome to follow me on instagram at nina.mohanty i mostly post about current events and politics and that sort of thing um or you can find me on linkedin please leave a note if you want to connect because i don't um i don't connect with people otherwise there are some strange people out there on the internet so just make sure you leave me a note um but otherwise very happy to connect so um hope to hear from people wonderful that's great well that's it folks you heard it here first nina mahanti giving her 411 on financial resilience some of the challenges faced when working to build it and some key tips one can start to take on your journey to financial resilience if you've enjoyed this episode then please take a moment to rate it on your favorite podcast platform and feel free to email me with any comments questions or suggestions so i can cover them in future episodes you can email me at domsi at yoursmartmoneymindset.com we'll be back on the 12th of february with a 25 minute with domsi segment these are the episodes i'll be doing in between interviews where i'll be covering a financial topic 
and sharing my best top tips on managing your money based on my own real life personal finance journey and challenges. Thanks a lot guys and speak soon.